You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at the Roxbury Hotel, Sydney, on the 30th of November, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that's bred the most terrible things. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Hello, Sydney! Yay! We're in Sydney! Wow! I haven't been here since I was born. That's a lie, but I was born here. <laughs> uh, my, my parents live on the Gold Coast now, and so when people hear that, they assume that's where I'm from, and I get all up, you know, angry, and I tell them, no, no, no I'm from somewhere with much more soul and a much stronger sense of identity and courage. I was born in Cronulla. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then they leave me alone <laughs> after checking me for tattoos. Um, no, I yeah. So I was born here. And I never lived here, but I've I've come back here in the last few years. I really like Sydney now. Well, I like Sydney because they gave us money. This is so exciting. We we've been crowdfunded by I wonderful know. wonderful people on Possible to come to Sydney and do this show. Yes, which is all about monsters and villains. Yes, uh, very exciting. And of course, Sydney has a, a long and proud tradition in Doctor Who itself. Uh, in the Green Death, Boss said that when he did take over the world, spoiler, he would be getting the Sydney Orchestra to play his victory ceremony. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Just, he, he, lived, he lived really close to London. The, the London Philharmonic, not good enough, had to go all the way to Sydney. <laughs> Unless the Sydney Orchestra was cheaper and he thought it was a better option. Um, well, in, he, he was programmed for efficiency. <laughs> in Kate Orman's novel Set Piece, there's an interdimensional cafe in Glebe where we're recording this. Yeah. Kate Orman, also um, only woman to write for The New Adventures and an Australian author. And brilliant. And we know the 11th Doctor has been here sometime in the last 40 years because in A Christmas Carol there is a picture of him outside the Sydney Opera House. And my favourite is in Journey's End, when the Earth has returned from the Medusa Cascade, there are fireworks because Sydney will find any excuse for fireworks. (laughs) So we're very excited for the show. Let's get going, though, and to do that we'll need some guests. Petra, what guests have you got for us? Well, John... Our first Splendid Chap is a comedian, word geek, academic and ex-corporate lawyer. She's performed impro and sketch comedy with various groups including the Cambridge Footlights and won Sydney's inaugural home-baked comedy competition in 2011. She now writes for the satirical news radio show Irrational Fear, hosts tracksuits on FBI radio and performs stand-up regularly around Sydney. She describes herself as a bad musician... But we're hoping she'll prove herself wrong at the end of the show. She's Alice Fraser. Our second splendid chap was also an FBI radio broadcaster and worked as a TV producer for the ABC in programs including Triple J TV, One Night Stand and Raw Comedy. She's also had one of Australia Television's best jobs when she was a producer and programmer for late night music video show Rage and research for both Kitchen Cabinet and the First Tuesday Book Club. She's now a social media producer and can make cake shaped like Daleks and Tardises. She's Maddie Palmer. And our final Splendid Chat is an actor and presenter best known as one of the hosts of the long-running ABC video game program, Good Game, and its junior cousin, Good Game, Spawn Point. Both are a long way from the worst job he's ever had, which was dressing as Austin Powers and dancing in a shoe store for 14 hours. (laughs) He's Stephen Bajo O'Donnell. (laughs) 
climb over them. Continuing that whole overly visual thing, uh, I should explain to the listeners, our, our three guests have all been hiding Nailed behind it. the couch. <laughs> Which is, well, behind the sofa, sorry, I Americanized it there, um, which, is, which is charming enough in itself, but I want to point out they've had to do that for the last 15 minutes, <laughs> which is where it just tips over into insanity. We commit, <laughs> we commit. A lot of time to reflect on my life back there. <laughs> what conclusions have you drawn, Bajo? I'm, I'm glad I don't have to dress up as Austin Powers anymore yeah. in a shoe store. I didn't always, even sound or look like him, it was so stupid. We always start off by asking people, you know, how they came to Doctor Who, but I need to start off by asking you, what the hell? <laughs> Well, growing up as a struggling actor in Brisbane where you get a job every seven years, uh, you do what you can, and I was, I was asked to dress up as Austin Powers and dance and, and creepily hand out candy to children and other people <laughs> in the shop. Please uh, tell me at some point you were like, do I make you horny, baby? <laughs> <laughs> no, I managed to keep it quite safe, but it was, uh, yeah, it was not a fun experience, and everyone's just confused. It was like a, 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 a sense of confusion, not, not joy, not happiness, not anger or sadness. Like, well, I'm, I'm confused. I don't I don't understand what you're doing in a shoe store. What the hell are you selling? I don't understand. What am I meant to be buying from that? You know what? After about seven hours, I just stood in the window and froze and pretended to be a statue. (laughs) That's how I got through the last half. And then at the end of the day, though, you you don't need to come back for that second day. It's fine. I think we got all we need. Is that what living statues around the city are? Not actually people who've tried to be statues, but people who just got so mortified with their original role that they've just stopped. Pretty much. With their life choices. That's how the the weeping angels happened. Actually, if they hired you to do a weeping angel for 14 hours, then halfway through you'd start dancing, wouldn't you? That's the... <laughs> I can't dance. It's more like a, a man, if you imagine a person who's writhing in pain from a, a back injury the, their whole life and they're slightly excited at the same time. That's kind of my... We always start the show by asking people how they came to Doctor Who. Alice, how did you come to be a fan of the Doctor? Well, I came quite late. I, um... I didn't watch any TV as a kid, and then I was—I went to Cambridge for university, and everyone went home for the Christmas holidays. And there's like three hours of sunlight, and it's miserably cold. Uh, and I was shut in with just me and my computer, and I—I I got on to Eccleston, and then I went backwards, and then I went forwards, and uh, you know, didn't do it chronologically because it's time travel. <laughs> <laughs> so Rose was your starting point. Did you start with? Yeah, it? yeah, I started with Rose and went back, and then mm-hmm. went forward. So Eccleston is your first Doctor. Is he your favourite? Uh, I don't have a favourite. I like them all. Because there's, you know, there's a spirit that runs through. Slut. <laughs> doing that face. You are doing that face. Um, I'm, as I'm going to say, I'm, don't you slut shame her. And like as many Doctors as you want. I'm, I'm polydoctoral. Yeah. <laughs> As we always say on Spanish Chaps, there's no wrong way to be a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> Maddie Palmer, you disagree. <laughs> that, was, that was a term of endearment. <laughs> no, I actually have a, a, a similar background. I, I didn't watch um, t- much TV as a child at all, and, and now I have two degrees in it. So if you ever plan to sort of, like, hope that your child will become incredibly literate by forbidding TV, it's not going to work. So I, uh, you know, it was on sort of other people's houses and I I probably saw more of the Tom Baker era than anything else as a child because it was the one that was repeated the most when I was young. But um, I got into it again in the the rebirth and then went back and 
and watched everything else. And I actually have a similar... I was in the UK for Christmas a couple of years ago with all of my extended family, and I was so excited that I was going to be able to watch the Christmas special live. I, you know, I was just... You know, I'd scheduled the whole dinner around it, so you can have, you know, the chicken here, and then the dessert was going to come out afterwards. And then I lost the vote, and we had to watch Love Actually. Oh! I know, I know. <laughs> I quite liked Love Actually. <laughs> This is such a controversial show, isn't it? Slut. Oh, sure. Where did your love for Doctor Who start? Uh, I think Tom Baker as well. Just once again, it was the most repeated. I just remember being terrified as a child, watching midday TV and turning on, and then suddenly I was just afraid and I'd hide under my bed. It was just very scary. And do you have a favourite? Uh, I think Tennant. I think I think David Tennant. I, do, I love his. Um, I love how his face can just turn dark at the, at the sw- a flick of a switch. He's just suddenly he's all happy, and then he's like, Whoa, and then he's back. You know, he's, he's got that that bumbling. Uh, um, uh, I can't think of the word. Delightfully bipolar. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like there are thirty people inside a bunch of people inside his head, all talking at once and flipping in and out of the dark and the light to avoid talking about the dark. And I like that. I think he did that the best personally. So we're here tonight to talk about villains and monsters in Doctor Who. Just to give us a little bit of a background on that, what do you know, Petra Elliott? Not much, but I've got something here I can read. (laughs) According to that great page-turner, philosophy and power in the Greco-Roman world, essays in honour of Miriam Griffin, the word monster derives from the Latin monstrum, which meant an aberrant occurrence, usually biological, that was a sign something was wrong within the natural order. However, the root of monstrum is monere, which means not only to warn, but also to instruct, and forms the basis of the word demonstrate. Thus, the monster is also a sign or instruction. In the 5th century, St. Augustine wrote in City of God, Book 11, surely the Harry Potter franchise of its day, that the monster was not inherently evil, but part of the natural design of the world. Incidentally, the St. Augustine monster is also the name given to a large unidentified carcass that washed ashore in Florida in 1896. You can find photos and crazy theories on an internet near you. The word villain, meanwhile, comes from the Anglo-French and Old French villain, which comes from the Latin villainous, meaning farmhand, referring to people who worked on plantations in late antiquity in Italy or Gaul. It indicated someone who wasn't a knight and therefore was not chivalrous. In what was clearly an early example of class warfare, it became used as a term of abuse and eventually took on its modern meaning. Vladimir Prop the Kylie Minogue of Russian fairy tales analyzers, concluded that all fairy tales had only eight character types, of which one was the villain. In many ways, the villain was the most important character as his actions both initiate the story and give it a conclusion. Film critic Roger Ebert once said, each film is only as good as its villain. Since the heroes and the gimmicks tend to repeat from film to film, only a great villain can transform a good try into a triumph. Yet author and science writer Ben Bova recommends to authors that their work shouldn't contain any villains. He wrote, In the real world, there are no villains. No one actually sets out to do evil. There are no villains cackling and rubbing their hands in glee as they contemplate their evil deeds. They are only people with problems struggling to solve them. Hmm. I think there's something in that for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) So, monsters... Let's start with monsters, of, of the monsters and villains part. And monsters often represent 
something. Vampires in particular, for example, uh, indicated both a sort of fear of sex and also a fear of the outsider at the time. Um, there's a lot of things that zombies have stood in for. What do you think the monsters in Doctor Who represent? I'm going to start with you, Maddie, because you, you look like you have thoughts in your pretty little head. Oh, so, I thought I'd have one of these two, you <laughs> Well, I've thought a lot about the difference between the sort of villains and monsters of Doctor Who, and um, basically most of the monsters seem to uh, represent kind of um, one aspect of humanity that's missing or devoid. If you take something like, you know, the Daleks, they're missing sort of a sense of mercy and compassion, and, you know, the Cybermen seem to be missing, you know, a sense of individuality, a sense of, you know, civil disobedience. Uh, So... uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting show in the sense that a lot of the monsters are also species, um, so that they've all come from different places and had different um, different uh, ways of becoming monstrous. But they do all seem to re- represent um, kind of a dramatic foil against which both the Doctor's humanity and the humanity of his companions will be contrasted against. I think, yeah, I find it really interesting because I think that the monsters or monsters in general always behave fairly consistently with their character. They have... They are, they are natural. They behave in a natural way, whatever that might be, uh, even though it might be monstrous. Whereas villains... It's interesting, that etymology, that they don't have chivalry. Villains are behave in ways that we don't see as natural because they have these weird motivations and they're outside of of any order. And that's why I think they're sort of more terrifying than monsters in many ways and more charming because, you know, I like a villain. (laughs) (laughs) I, I... I like monsters the most. I think monsters are great because you, in their mind, they're not monsters. Whereas I think a villain, almost in their mind, they can see that they're kind of a villain. You know, they're just trying to satisfy their own things. But a monster is, like you say, you know, they're, beha- they're behaving on instinct, and what they're doing in their mind isn't isn't monstrous. You know, they're just trying to find a place to live. If that means they have to eat everyone there, that's fine. <laughs> they're just trying to survive and get on with their, you know, their their primal brains. Whereas the villains, <laughs> the villains, uh, they, but, I don't know, they seem to have more selfish needs. But you you pity a monster. You yeah. admire a villain. This is true. Well, I actually thought about that a lot when I was sort of watching old stuff and, you know, thinking about this, is a lot of the monsters of Doctor Who are essentially refugees. Mm. They may sort of go about their colonial plans in um, less than ethical ways, but uh, a lot of them, their main motivation is to look for a home. Mm. Um, well, they're ethically consistent with their own kind of culture. Yeah. They're just, you know, Sontarans doing what Sontarans got to do. Fish got to swim, you know, we can't charge them. There is a weird element, and this is sort of going astray to begin with, but uh, xenophobia, it's kind of almost like uh, there is a weird thing where, especially probably more recently, um, all aliens are monsters. You know, it's like there's a sense that we, we no longer get happy aliens or nice aliens on the show. It's like, and when you mention refugees, I know uh, Mark Gatiss got in trouble for The Unquiet Dead for a story which starts off with these people saying that they're refugees, they need help, and of course they're proven to be evil! Yeah. Which is, yeah, there's quite a right-wing way you can read that. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I, um, you know, Britain, I guess, has uh, a less violent re- reaction to refugees than we do in Australia right now, but they do have a very uh, long history of colonialism and um, all of the uh, I'm trying to find sort of politically correct ways of phrasing this, or you know, all of the slightly racist and xenophobic attitudes that come along with that. And 
it is one of the things that occasionally sort of worries me when I watch Doctor Who is that a lot of it is about um, the Doctor Who, out of all the places in time and space, has picked not only Earth but specifically Britain to protect against the oncoming hordes from everywhere else. And I, I hope... I, you know, I, I feel like you have, we have seen the um, politics of the show evolve somewhat, like with the uh, Silurians and stuff. So, you know, I'd be curious to sort of see if uh, we get a bit more of a liberal attitude towards uh, the aliens. Well, um, you know, Doctor Who is an alien. He's sort of exactly. the token alien, and then you get to be alienist against everyone He's else. He's both people. He's on that ship, you know, <laughs> crashing all over the place. I guess it taps into that fear of being different, right? We fear things that are different, and that's why monsters are often so scary, and they are the monsters because they are so different. You look at it and you, you don't really understand it, so you instantly fear it. It's like that that really base kind of reptile brain perception of the um, the villain. The, the things that I find most scary personally, though, when you get someone like uh, Simon's Pegroll, which is the editor, right, where it's a human, a human villain, and it, it, it doesn't look different, and somehow found that much more chilling than any of the monsters in, in Doctor Who. We talked about this when we talked about evil back in episode two, that, that sometimes the most evil evil people in the show are the human beings who side with the monsters, like Mavic Chen in the, the Daleks' master plan and uh, Thomas Vaughan in the invasion, when they go, yeah, Cybermen, Daleks, sure, they're evil forces of elemental evilness, but I can get what I want by siding with them, so great. Yeah, I, I don't know I'm... why people do that. It's like, of course they're going to just kill you once they've got yeah. what they want. <laughs> it's like, it's so like signing a record deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you also met a Dalek? <laughs> I mean, come on. But also, it never works, does it? It's like you're going, so, have you never watched a science fiction <laughs> show? <laughs> watch a sci-fi film, read a book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before you sign on the line. Because we mentioned that, that the show is much harder on Quislings than it is on yes. monsters and villains. Like, and interestingly, like what you were saying about you know, how aliens are always the monsters and always evil now, um, it's also, you know, they're, they're usually the most, uh, for, for want of a better term, the most ugly ones, the ones who are the least human-looking are the most evil. Whereas the show used to turn that on its head. If you go all the way back to William Hartnell and you look at um, Galaxy 4, there's two, you know, crashed spaceships with different species on them. One of the Dravans, who all look like blonde, weird six these supermodels, um, and the other one, the Rills, you don't even see them. They, they can't come out of their spaceship because they don't even breathe oxygen, and they look like this weird giant toad face thing in a tank, but uh, like a, a fish tank, not a, they're not like a Dalek. Uh, but they, they turn out to be the nice guys, and the Dravids, they're the ones who are like taking over the whole universe and blowing up planets and conquering things. So it used to turn that sort of thing on its head in a way that you just don't see as much anymore in the show. Classic Twilight Zone kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Where Twilight Zone would take that and then just flip it around. But, I mean, that goes back to like Dante is sort of saying, you know, the ultimate circle of hell isn't the people who are evil and amoral, it's the traitors. It's the people that sort of do have loyalties and do know which way they should go and do the opposite anyway. Yeah. I only know that from Angel. I haven't read The Inferno in years. <laughs> <laughs> There's I was... no wrong way to be an Inferno fan. <laughs> <laughs> Slut. I, I was thinking about this, too, about the, um, the, the, the fact that... Because uh, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking, oh, the show seems to just, you know, hate aliens now. And thinking, well, that makes sense because you need antagonists. You know, you need a plot. Then I thought, but I guess the difference is that we used to have aliens as companions. And so maybe that was the thing as well as the Doctor, there might be another alien on board the TARDIS. So at least there's kind of going, oh, well, there can be more than one good alien. Mm. Whereas this time now, it seems maybe this, there's one good alien. There's one good one. <laughs> it's like how your mum hates all Asians, but there's one she likes. <laughs> I guess if, if the Doctor came to town and aliens came to town and they all just hung out, it wouldn't be that fun an episode. <laughs> it's like, we have a sandwich together, we have some food and dinner. It'd be an interstellar friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
That could work. That sounds That's awesome. Anything awesome. yeah. <laughs> involving yeah, aliens having sandwiches, I think it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, they don't eat many sandwiches, do they? Uh, let's pick a couple of specific ones and let's, let's do you know, Superman versus Batman style and put them up against each other. Um, the, the Daleks and the Cybermen are the two biggest monsters in the show. And we were talking about what things you know, represent and I... I I still believe the Daleks just represent World War II. Like well, I, I well think they're, they're explicitly written that way. Like, Terry Nation um, did... I, I, I did some research. Um, but he had really vivid memories because, you know, he was, he was working in the 60s, he was alive during World War II, and he remembered all the propaganda, he remembered the war, he remembered the bombings, and he, he really wanted to sort of... You know, that, that's the story he wanted to tell. And you look at a lot of early Doctor Who or indeed any television made in the 30, 40 years after the war, um, you can see that influence is there. It's huge in, in the UK. Uh, and so he deliberately made them a bit Nazi-ish, uh, which is one of the main inspirations. But this, this is the other thing I found, is not only are they based on the Nazis, uh, and you see that particularly in his later work, like from Genesis of the Daleks onward, where like the Khaleds, who eventually turn into Daleks, are just getting around in Gestapo uniforms. I mean, that was not just because the BBC was a bit cheap and they just made a war <laughs> film. You know, it's, it's like, no, we're going we're gonna to make them explicitly like Nazis. But the other thing was about a fear of radiation, because of course they were um, radioactive mutants. And in the first story, that's, that's all they were. They were just radioactive mutants. There was none of this genetic manipulation or, or planned mutation. It was just what happened after a dirty nuclear war. And supposedly, um, Terry Nation, before he wrote for Doctor Who, was a writer for uh, Tony Hancock, the comedian. And Tony Hancock was working on a TV show which was going to be a history of the entire world. And that TV show was going to end with a bit about the future in which there is a nuclear war which blows everyone up and reduces all the people to cinders, but they're still alive. So they have to live in dustbins, which are robots. <laughs> and the story goes that when Tony Hancock saw the Daleks on TV, written by Terry Nation, he stood up out of his chair and went, that bloody nation, he's stolen my robots. <laughs> and I have no idea if any of that story is true, but I like it. <laughs> so, so there's that idea. It's a fear of radiation of what, what might become from ultimate war. And then there's also, you know, the personification of ultimate war in that they are made to be like Nazis. But... I, I don't think they're very much like real Nazis. Oh. Well, uh, this is the thing that I was thinking before, which is that the real fear about Nazis or the thing, at least now, that is so terrifying about Nazism is you worry whether you could become one. That's, I mean, that's the fear now. I don't know if maybe 50 years ago it would have, would have been more... There would have been more monsters at that time because you couldn't realistically look at what happened because it was all so fresh. But now... The thing that people talk about when you talk about Nazism, the rise of Nazism, is what would I have done? And so I think the more insidious kind of creepy parasitic monsters and villains are more uh, related to that. Yeah, and, and I think the Daleks really represent that cartoon idea that we have of Nazis that we still see in films. Like, there's a reason why it's Nazis in the two good Indiana Jones films. Um, and, and then in things like Hellboy and other things. It's because Nazis are the people that we're allowed to hate. They personify this is as evil as a person can be, which is a very, you know, black and white cartoony depiction of, you know, Germans who were members of the Nazi party and fought as, as soldiers. It's obviously there's a, a lot more complexity to it than that, but it's very easy to reduce it to this government did these awful things, these people work for that government, therefore they are evil. And it's less scary as well. Yeah. It's less scary to think that some people are just bad people. 
And the third thing I'm interesting is I think they've changed what they represent. I think when they started, they were that insidious fear. They were the fear that um, medical advancements and, and everything from you know, artificial hearts to, to hip transplants could be the step towards you being seduced into becoming something that you... Was inhuman. Yeah, and that you didn't realise or that it was you, were, you thought the trade-off was worth it. Now I think they've changed, though. I think now they're more about a fear of technology and a fear of your individuality being... Reduced. I think that was definitely true in the um, in the tenth Doctor. Um, sorry, I'm terrible at episode names, but the one rise of the Cybermen. That would make sense. Where uh, <laughs> where you know everyone becomes Cybermen because they're getting messages beamed mm. in to each other. But I think the Cybermen on the whole kind of um, represent a fear of. Uh, of obedience to a power that isn't necessarily benevolent. You know, in the, in the same way that Daleks could be said to represent Nazis, I kind of think there's probably a communist or Cold Warish element to the Cybermen, where it's about sort of huge armies of people that have um, all acqui- acquiesced to a power that doesn't have their best interests in mind. And I think that aspect has now moved from a military sense to a technological sense, but it's about that, um, you know, giving up of your agency and your individuality and your morality to... A greater power that is uh, an asshole. It's a, it's, a, it's, a relevant, it's a relevant theme, isn't it? I, I, I like the new Cybermen. I, I like. I like those themes revolving around it, and I like the fact that they're upgrading more. You know, it's like they took a long time to do that for <laughs> for what they are, and um, I find I can relate to them more than the older Cybermen. Especially, and I especially loved that episode where they slowed down time. I'm just fanning out on that episode where it's, it slowed down. You just saw them kind of strolling through, <laughs> picking up someone. <laughs> I just like they're playing more with that kind of, um, you know, making them seem. More than more than just a man in a suit. Now it really feels like they have extra powers, and and uh, the technology and uh, is improving them in a way that actually is going to dramatically affect how threatening they are to the Doctor. And I think they're really playing with that conflict, which I like a lot. You work with a lot of tech, just to, to one side of that. Do you ever think there is that potentiality? That I hope are... so. I want. I want my... say that, you know, that people can lose their... Yeah, yeah. My, my eyes are getting tired and my, my hands are getting sore. I have this fear that one day I will not be able to use my hands and I'll be relegated to playing motion games. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not want that day to come because it's so horrible. Uh, I, I cannot wait. I hope our consciousness, consciousness can get transferred into, into something to preserve for as long as we want. I think that's a really cool idea. It's also really scary because uh, there's a lot of really cool books um, by Ian M. Banks and one of them particular talks about how your... Uh, he's a cool sci-fi author who died recently, said. I'm getting off track of it. But he, um, he wrote this wonderful book uh, about how your consciousness could go to hell or heaven in, in certain societies. And I think that that's more of a fear that uh, society, once we transfer into a, a digital consciousness, that we could be tortured out of our control. But you would upgrade. You'd I would, the... uh, totally. Absolutely. As long as I could still keep my individuality to a point, I would love to be. I would love to be completely robot. <laughs> to would, which to bits a point? Your, that's terrifying. Which, which bits of your individuality are you willing to jettison? Let's, yeah. Let's let's probe deeper what, what, into you, Bajo. What do you want to keep? What, what, what would I what's keep? worth keeping? Uh, okay. Of the Bajo package, what, like what, keep, what are we? I'd like to keep my sense of humour. I've got a really dirty sense of humour, and I feel like that <laughs> defines me after a few gin and tonics at 4am on the stairs. I'm imagining side men telling dirty jokes. Yeah. 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 I'd, be, I'd be like. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's my that's my four a.m. gin and tonic posture. Um, I think I think I'd keep that uh, and my love of cats. Oh, oh, 
my cats could come with me. They could be transferred as well. Their little consciousness, and they could they could be little robot cats. But do you think if they plugged your consciousness and the cat's consciousness into the same cyber space, could you communicate? It would be the best internet meme ever. (laughs) I just I don't know. I I think I just end up having to clean myself. And while that sounds fun in theory, I don't think in practice it actually would be very fun. I'm picturing a Cyberman licking its own anus. The the Bajo wants to be a dirty Cyberman who likes cats. He's like, yeah, I must go now and stroke my pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mrs. Cyber Slocum. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you are basically an all cyber. Are you being served? Is what you're yeah. asking. <laughs> that would be, yeah. Well, I want to get back to that though, because you know when they when they were created, the cybermen were explicitly about the fear of cybernetics, like literal cybernetics, the idea that we could replace bits of our bodies with metal and and parts, and you know, in those days it was metal and plastic. These days it's more about electronics, and but, and I don't know that we're as afraid of that anymore. I don't think so, because we see it helping us all the time, right? We've got robot hearts and you see the, the Bondi vet doctor, whatever his name is, with his robot leg attaching to cats and stuff. They, it helps. And my back on cats. It helps. <laughs> we actually <laughs> talked about how we were going to minimise cat talk yeah, during this happen, podcast sorry. and you were the first one to crack. I'd like that note for the record. <laughs> Techno- it's, it's a good point. I've never really thought about that before, but technology is really, it, it helps us now. You know, we, we want technology in as much as possible because it only seems to make life better. We still find them frightening and in the modern series, really one of the things that's most pushed about the Cybermen is that they have no emotion and that's mm. supposed to be the worst thing that can happen to you. Why... Do we really believe that's a consequence of technology now? Like, I mean, you know, people complain about people using their mobile phones in public too much and not paying enough attention to their friends. But is that is that what that's about? Is that about losing your emotions or your emotional connection to others? I didn't really think... Get so much a sort of sense of it was about the loss of emotion so much as it was about the sense that someone with nefarious goals and how quickly they could they could take control. You know, if if they did have access to mass broadcast, if they did have you know pins or chips inside someone's head, then effectively there'd be no you know no recourse. Yeah. There'd be no way to defend defend ourselves. And we have given up so much. You know, I mean, most Gen Ys, I count myself in that kind of like, yeah, I know privacy, but it's so handy to find out where all of my Facebook friends live on Google Maps. <laughs> um, you know, we're kind of happy to sort of surrender that for the for the ease of convenience. And so, yeah, so I, I sort of thought that was more of an overriding theme with the, with the latest incarnations of the Sidemen. I think it's an interesting thing uh, to look at the kind of uh, slightly more techie way that we interact with one another. Like, if you look at kind of the um, heroes or or popular people now, in the 90s, people who were rich and powerful talked like jocks. They used sports terms and they were all kind of blokey. And now you have this very slightly awkward, very computer programmery kind of way of talking. And those are the heroes now because those are the Silicon Valley billionaires. Those are the people who do most of their interaction over the internet. And I think we all are moving towards that. And you lose... Uh, nuance and some kind of emotion, and I'm not sure what that means for the future. But uh, I don't, I don't see it necessarily as a problem. Like if you have to say everything that you're thinking out loud, you know, I don't see that that's necessarily a bad thing. A lot of things go unspoken in our society. So what are we actually frightened of now? Then do you think? Yeah, why? What, and particularly what's, what's... for the kids as well. Like if we're talking about children who are not frightened of that technology. And, and because you remember in, the, in that when they first brought the Cybermen back, they're infected by earpods, mm. which are fairly thinly disguised allegory for iPods and iPhones. <laughs> 
What are, what are the kids afraid of? Lo- being lost. Be, I mean, that's the thing now. Everyone, everyone has a voice, or so it all becomes homogenized, and you're lost in the tide. And everyone's desperately trying to be noticed. And I think, you know, if if you do succumb to technology in the hope that you get noticed, in the hope that you are larger than yourself, in the hope that you achieve something, and instead you're lost in this tide of homogeneity, you suddenly realise you're not special at all. I think that's terrifying. Gives me that the weeping angels sort of very much buy into that, that whole idea that you will, you will be taken out from your time and you will never, ever get back to it. Yeah, I like that. And that's the great thing about the Doctor, that he pays attention to people. You know, he notices people and he validates their existence by being conscious and aware of them. Uh, and, he, you know, even when he is lost in time, he knows where he is and he is, he's kind of this anchor point uh, that fights that fear. One of the differences between monsters and villains, which, which is mentioned as well, is that often in Doctor Who, when a monster shows up for the first time, it is a singular villain. So the Sontarans, for example, uh, when they show up in the Time Warrior, it's one Sontaran. He's clearly the villain of the story. As stories go on, then it becomes a race of, of indistinguishable Sontarans. And that happens with almost all the Doctor Who monsters. Although the Sontarans, to be fair, are the only race where it's, you know, there's a good reason why they might be indistinguishable. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all clones, yeah. But, but there is that sense of a journey from, yeah, singular yeah. To, to massive. And, and villains don't show up that much in Doctor Who. I mean, the Master is an obvious yeah. one. And you get the odd big one, like the Rani or, the, or Omega. Um, and then you get... In, again, you, you know, like we talked about before, you get humans who are working for the monsters. And occasionally you, you get monsters that have distinct personalities. Like, I think that was what Russell T. Davies was trying to do with the Slitheen, where he said, we're not a race, we're a family, you know? <laughs> There's a bunch of us. I mean, they didn't have very distinct personalities. They, he really simplified, evil means fat and stupid. And you're like, <laughs> Russell, that's not cool. Uh, but, but, you know, you could see what he was trying to do, which was make it smaller and more personal and make them individuals who are working together. Whether or not it worked is, is another discussion, but, you know, that was an interesting sort of move back towards an individual villain. Do you have any favourite individual villains? I consider the distinction, like, Daleks are monsters, Davros is a villain. You know, he has a degree of agency, he has a plan. Daleks are just pachoo, pachoo, pachoo all over the place. He's an and, individual. Um, yeah, he's an individual and... You know, he knows better but doesn't do it anyway. Yeah, it's the knowing it, better. Yeah. It's the having having an ethical framework that you move outside of deliberately rather than just being consistent with some sort of weird primal drive, which a lot of these monsters have. And, and it's the deliberate choice to move outside and do something that you know is wrong or that you justify to yourself. And that's the villain. And that's, yeah, as I said, I does, find villains quite charming. Does Davros know better, though? Like, he's clearly painted as psychotic from that first time you meet him when he talks to the fourth doctor and is that whole speech about if you could destroy everybody by releasing a virus, would you do it? And he goes, he thinks about it and he goes, yeah. Like, <laughs> that is not the thought of someone who knows better and is choosing to do the wrong he thing. He thought about it, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but he thought about it with glee. He didn't think about going, well, the downsides would be... Yeah. It was more... It, it looks like he was only taking time to think about it because he was enjoying the thought in his head. <laughs> don't need to be conflicted in their choices. They can okay. choose to be evil. He just knows what the ethical framework is and that he's got he an... Had he's, he had potential. He has Sorry, a choice. Like he's your teacher it's, now. It's agency. He could have done so well. <laughs> could have done so well. Yeah. yeah. Does the Beast count as an individual villain? 
that's a good question. <laughs> the beast from the from um, the Impossible Planet. Yeah, because yeah. that's one of my all-time favorite episodes, and I just I just loved mm. that. I love it when Doctor Who taps into something like, oh, it's a ghost. Oh, there are another alien species. You know, when they tap into something that is we can identify with and understand that already has all this lore attached to it, and just put a slight spin on it so you think about it in a different way and think about what that could mean uh, for humans on the Earth and for the Doctor, how he can deal with that. And I think I think the beast for me was it was just so much I already knew about him before I'd even met him. You know, that that built such interesting imagery that they could use with, you know, standing there in the chains and it was just a beast and, and then all the, the crazy possession stuff. I always find that really fun because you just don't know what's going on. I think it's interesting to think of, um, maybe because I do like villains so much, um, in many ways the Doctor is a villain by his own terms and by the, the terms of, of his own race. He, he has chosen to step outside their ethical framework and it just happens to be convenient for us and he's a, a hero to us. But he does have that very clear decision to go out on his own and, and make his own uh, choices about morality, which, uh, I don't know, I think he's my favourite villain. <laughs> I like that he gives the villains a chance. And he gives everyone... I like the Doctor gives most most villains and, and even monsters a chance. You know, yes. he's like, you, I know you're doing this thing for your own reasons and I'm just going to say it's wrong and what are you going to do about it? Nothing? Okay, cool. Let's... Yeah. yeah. Watch out. Here we go. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. do that if I were you. Oh, you did it. Look, you blew yourself up. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely like the sort of post... You know, McCoy was very much a genocidal maniac of a Doctor. Um, and In a know. good way? I think he was uh, more of an ends justified the means kind of doctor, whereas I think having lived through the extermination of his own people, or not, according to last week, um, that uh, by the time we hit sort of... Yeah, spoilers for last week. Um, I always like it when people say spoilers after they've spoiled something. Yeah. It's like, uh, let's acknowledge the traditional owners say, of the land. But yeah, yeah, after we've already like, built a brick already... house here and Can, can I just down. point out that... At the end that of the crime the... game, it's a man. <laughs> well, yeah, so, no, I'm with you on this. If somehow the, the world record-breaking simultaneous transmission <laughs> of a television show which also made $10 million in the cinemas... <laughs> has still managed to pass you by. I think you lose the right to complain about spoilers. That's my point. I will concede that point. Okay. Sorry, Maddie, you were saying? I think that was a marked shift between old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who, that from from the ninth Doctor, uh, he was much more conscious of, you know, of, of genocide. You know, he had. Yeah. You know, he, he had that blood on his hands, and you know, even confronted by sort of Daleks and various other monsters, he he still always wanted to sort of say, "I don't want to be the person to eliminate your species." Yeah, yeah. give you a chance. I, what? No. Whoops. I love it when they play with that. When they really drill down on that, and I don't think they do it too much. I think my favourite with that was really shown, like with the imagery of fire behind the Doctor's face. You know, was um, the, is it Ragnos, the oh, yeah. the pantomime spider, who I thought she, I thought she was <laughs> terrible, but I right. love the ideas of that episode. Um, and her children, you know, in the hole, and and he, he gave her the chance, and then and then the the fire and the the fear, and you learnt, you know, you you saw the companion learn something about him and and how villainous he is in that way, I guess, and and. You learnt about that um, that conflict that he has to deal with all the time of being the person who flicks the switch. Yeah, and that's why he needs a companion. He mm. sort of needs a grounding force. Monsters or villains that haven't appeared much in the show you'd like to see again. What would you like to see a, a return from? 
I, I, I want to see the Beast again, but I really like I really like the Ice Warrior. I know we saw him quite recently, and I didn't know much about him, and I went back and kind of watched a bit and learned a bit. And I just like I like the Ice Warrior race, and I like I like how they're kind of like a reptile Robocop, you know. <laughs> and that's how I see them anyway. I want to I want to see more of them. That cold count. I just like to say also too. I like it when we because there's, there's obviously a lot of Doctor Who fans here, and I like it when we say this is my favourite. And there's always little noises, you know. <laughs> like, no, I don't. That's not my. Favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I say this guy's the best. Mm, really. <laughs> I, this, I love the space. I can yeah. feel it ebbing and flowing from the room. again. Again, the arguments that will happen later. <laughs> we stress Wonderful. safe space. There is no wrong way to be a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> but yes, I, I'd like to see more of, of the uh, the Ice Warrior. Um. Up until a year ago, I would have liked to see the great intelligence back, but that happened and it was awesome. Uh, now, I think I'd actually go for Malice. The, oh, yeah. the big wow. head from the Davidson era. Um, not because yeah. I thought it was so incredibly... Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Don't I you, am going back behind the sofa in this frame. Don't you fan shame her. Um, uh, not because I thought it was so incredible, but I think it has so many elements which the latter era of Doctor Who has done really well. Like, you've got the whole um, political ar- allegory of, of the sense that it's a it's a monster that feeds on fear and there's sort of so many layers to that that I think can really be explored in the show now. And you also have the the element that it's sort of sent people through time, which, um, you know, I think has been Moffat's uh, sort of one real mark on the show is that he's really played with, you know, the, the time travel aspect to a degree that no other showrunner has. So I think um, a Moffat-era episode of Malice, I'd, I'd love to see it. Okay. Mm. No, that's great. That's cool. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see the nesting consciousness again. And I, I, I'm fixated on it a little bit because maybe it was the first of the old ones that I saw. But I just like, you know, the, the you know, focusing in on a garbage bin with sinister music, that kind of part of it. I just I find that really good. Yeah, it's surprising that Moffat didn't bring them back because he does love to make normal things frightening and he could have done, like, look out, kids, it's your telephone. Yeah. yeah. There's something very, that, you know, taps into actually, like, the Japanese tradition of horror films and finding something very sinister in the uncanny and, you know, there's sort of what could be more prosaic than plastic. It was sort of everywhere and particularly kind of, it would have been quite new and a bit of a technological development in the 60s to find something sinister and plastic. It kind of, you know, I feel like it parallels with... 90s sci-fi TV shows where, you know, the monster was always in the internet and it was everywhere. Yeah. Have, have you seen Trolls 2? No. Oh, my goodness. The baddie in that is vegetarianism. Oh. It's amazing. I shit you not. Is, you is, have to see it. It's so bad. I'm a vegetarian, though. Am I yeah. right in thinking You're Troll the... 2 is the film with no trolls in it? Yeah, it has no okay. trolls in it. It has, uh, And there's everything uh, you kind of get turned into a tree and then turned into sludge and then eaten and reprocessed. And I, I, I'm not kidding, the the kid in the end wins by aggressively eating a hamburger. It's so good. Spoilers. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Petra. Petra. Who would you like to see back or what would you like I to see kinda, back? Well, I like the unspoken monsters, I guess, like the adipose or... Um, look... Vincent and the Doctor strikes me as what was really the villain there and I think it's 
or the monster. And I think that's depression. We're talking yeah. about the monsters inside us. And I think that when Doctor Who touches on humanity, um, I, you know, the, the evil within us, I, I really get involved in those stories. I really love them. I, say, I love that story too because I do love an allegorical monster. Like, I, mm. I love the best zombie films in which zombie represents something as well as being frightening. And Vincent the Doctor, I think, does that so well. Mm, it's a um, brilliant story. I was having there's, there's two I want to pick, one old, one new. I, I love the mechanoids. I think the mechanoids are mm-hmm. great. And they, they do... Say, oh, applause for the mechanoids, yeah. Um, oh, there we go. There's a picture of a mechanoid. And, and one of the things that makes the mechanoids work, which I think the best Doctor Who monsters have both great design but also great voices. I think sound is so massively important in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And the mechanoids have that great, creepy robot voice that just gives numbers and commands and that whole stop. And it's just, they're great. They, um, the only reason they, they, they were originally designed to be an ongoing villain and there was merchandise from them, but they were too big to fit in the lift to the studio, which is the, <laughs> the main reason they never used them again. Um, and from New Who, I really like The Wire. And I always thought it was a shame that we haven't seen... Because the other great thing about The Wire is that she's meant to represent this creature that lives in energy. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be the same actor. It'd be great if it was. But you can also put her in the future, you can put her in the past, she can be anywhere. Like it's a, and I think also the, the episode never really explained what she was in particular. So there's still a lot more room there, I think, for her. Yeah. Ben? This one's tough for me because I had one for ages. Um, for years and years when they brought back the show, I always wanted to see them do the Silurian again because that, that concept is it's such a great science fiction conundrum because they are the you know the Aboriginal or indigenous people of the whole earth they evolved here first they lived here they had a civilization then they went underground and as far as the world knew were dead and we rose up quite naturally as human beings and you know we live on the planet and of course it's you know we have every right to be here as well and then they come back so they are at the same time both the original inhabitants and um, a colonizing other force. They're both at the same time, and that's a really difficult kind of thing. I thought, that's great, you could have all this political allegory, and then they brought them back, and I just didn't really think they did much with it. Um, so I, I guess I'd kind of like them to bring that back and bring that element back in more, because I think that's what's interesting about them now, is how do you resolve that conflict, not just with human beings, but in themselves. Like, how do they resolve the fact that we belong here, but now these guys belong here, how do we... You know, um, so and also when they're done well, they're they're like a race of individuals. They're the actual people. Uh, they just happen to be non-human people. Um, but I was I was looking through this book, uh, which is the uh, 1975. This is a this is a later reprint, but it's the 1975 Doctor Who monster book, um, which has a list of some of the best um, monsters. And they could have picked any monsters from all of Doctor Who up until 1975. So they included, of course, the Zabi, um, <laughs> Sensorites, the Mechanoids, the Aztecs. Uh, oh, sorry, axons. The Aztecs are not monsters. Um, <laughs> the axons and the mining robot. Um, but I, I actually really like the axons. I think the axons are a really interesting thing because it, they're an allegory for a lot of things which are very um, pertinent issues today. Like, uh, you know, in, we have an energy crisis. You know, how are we going to make clean energy for the future? That's what they represent. Um, and if they came back and people remembered them, like, that would be an interesting one to do again and see, well, how would they do it differently now? So I think, I think I'd like to see them come back. I'd like to see more scary British children, just cosmetically, whenever they use scary small British children being <laughs> creepy. Like in the, the, the plague, the children plague with the Mommy. masks. Oh, the yeah, yeah. Duh, see? Mommy. They work so well, more scary children. There's nothing else to add to that. Just no, no, I think that's an excellent choice. That children was of the corn in space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. 
just wanted to read out a couple of tweets because there is a Dalek in the audience, um, in disguise, clearly. As um, a human? Verbose Dalek on Twitter is in the audience and uh, tweeted a few things. First of all, tweeted a picture of the stairs on the way here and said, this will not stop me. <laughs> Striking a blow for accessibility everywhere. And did ask a question, which I don't think we'll have time to answer because it would take a long time, but a question... Rate the best Daleks from one to five billion or be exterminated. <laughs> I don't think we'll have time. We have millions of questions here from our audience and they're all brilliant. But first, what we should do is prizes. Whoa! Now, um, we, we did make a... Should we do the... We'll do the listener one first, perhaps. Shall yeah, because we, we forgot to do this the other night at Acme. Yeah, so when we were doing our um, 11 future episode, normally we give away a prize to a listener who commented on the previous episode, but it was so exciting, what with the Dalek and the TARDIS and the Casey Bonetto song, we all got... We forgot about it, so we're going to do it now. So this is a prize we're drawing for someone who commented on our episode 10 slash sex, not teen sex, 10 slash sex. Um... <laughs> And uh, they, they, this is someone who commented on that episode, and they are going to win, John, a copy of... Of season four box set, thanks to our, our very good friends at BBC on DVD. So uh, this is someone who left a comment. Uh, Alice, would you mind picking the winner? Ian Nichols. Ian Nichols! Ian Nichols! Oh. Someone said, ooh, as though he's here. He's... Are you here, Ian? You'll see him on Monday. That's great. We didn't bring Same the prize with us. It's we largely the, irrelevant. We, we brought the wrong we prize. We brought the wrong prize. We brought a prize with us. <laughs> so if, if you want to enter to win the copy of Season 7 box set, which you can do by leaving a comment on the uh, 11 slash the future episode, you'll also know that it went to Sydney and back for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> it makes it more worthwhile. It's got miles on the clock. It's experienced. <laughs> We've asked the audience for questions. They have left many, many excellent, excellent questions. Great so questions. we're going to throw structure to the wind and just start reading through them. This is the one we want to start with, though. Please explain who all of the characters are that you're discussing. Not all of us have an encyclopedic knowledge of the show, you big nerds. <laughs> That's a fair I, comment. I, I, I actually added the last three words on there. It didn't say you big nerds. I was just... Uh, it said something worse. Didn't no, no, no. It just said uh, inside people's knowledge. The the show. You now, big nerds was silent. <laughs> now, this they is, often are. This is I, an utterly <laughs> fair and irrelevant... Um, can we ask who left this one? This is... You don't have to... At, at the back! <laughs> no, it wasn't by joke. You don't have to own up. Even don't worse, make... someone I know. Hi, Nick! <laughs> Uh, no, that's fair, because we always say there's no wrong way to be a Doctor Who fan. But and that, Nick of course, is a big includes... nerd. That's why I'm confused. You know who all these people are. Okay, no, that's fair enough. But okay, so just, just, just as a... Uh, for example, who have we, who have we not covered? I'm thinking to... people like Mavic Chen. The Mechanoids. Oh, the Mechanoids. Oh, okay. We did show a picture. Yeah, we, we, we well, tried to help you with that one. Visual podcast. <laughs> we can explain the Mechanoids. So in, in the chase, uh, the Daleks have a time machine and they're chasing... You Googled them during the break. Uh, I love you. So you don't want us to explain then? <laughs> oh, no, some people do want us to explain. So in the chase, the Daleks manage to build a working time machine and they can follow the TARDIS through space and time. They're chasing them. One of the planets they end up on right at the end of the chase um, is a planet that uh, was supposed to be for human colonisation. They sent these robots there to build a city for the humans and the robots are called the Mechanoids and they're these big... They look like a geodesic dome but with um, a weird sort of hoop-shaped 
arm and a flamethrower and they, they've sort of, their programming screwed up so they see everyone as a threat and they just try and burn everyone, <laughs> even the humans who were supposed to go there and colonise it. Um, and so that's where the Doctor meets Stephen Taylor. He's crashed on that planet, he can't escape because um, the mechanoids won't let him. They look almost exactly like the um, satellite Telstar, by the way. Yes. <laughs> no, they, they really do. This is the weird thing. Telstar was a communication satellite launch, which also has a hit song, um, which is fantastic. I remember that song. The song is great. I used to do a show on Joy, and I would keep playing it, even though they kept asking me to stop. <laughs> and, and just to explain a character that John mentioned that you might not know, Joy is uh, a community radio station in Melbourne. Yeah. Now, Melbourne is a city that's <laughs> towards the bottom of the country. Yeah, a city, a city is a collection, is a large of, people. collection no, look, of people. This, this when a man is a, and a woman a, love one another, this is a fair point. But look, look, my, my only hope is that you will go forward, like Nick, wanting to Google and learn more. Yeah. If we've done but, that, we've done something. But as a note, if we introduce anyone else who might be a bit obscure, we'll try and give you a bit more background. Um, a couple of other quick ones. We mentioned Mavic Chen. Mavic Chen was the guardian of the solar system, so it was his. he was essentially like the governor general of the solar system. <laughs> it was his job to make sure uh, that all the security worked and everything, and he colluded with the Daleks. Because what's more evil in. than a governor general? <laughs> <laughs> Marie Bashir, Sorry. a prime minister. Sorry. Yeah, well, you know what? I was, I was looking up, you know, I was doing a bit of research before this, and I, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, obviously. I've seen all the episodes, but I also don't have an encyclopedic knowledge, so you'll notice if you mention one that is a bit of obscure, and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just faking it. <laughs> it's going all right so far. But I, I, I don't remember, why is there a Prime Minister Dalek? Well, I don't remember that. I don't remember, I just look at the Prime Minister of the Dalek. It doesn't make any sense, because the oh, there's a Dalek Parliament. You're supposed to have a very rigid command structure with someone. <laughs> it's basically imperial. Like, this guy's in charge, and then these Daleks are in charge of everyone below that. It's, it's like the Roman army. It's like a centurion, and yet then they have a Parliament. The word Prime Minister throws me. Just surely they'd have some Dalek name for I want to see robotic a overlord. I, I want to really see a Dalek like election. And then they all form Dalek subcommittees oh, to yeah. advise the Prime Minister. Minister on various Daleks. Objection! Objection! <laughs> I am Question the Dalek time. for administrative affairs. <laughs> Please Dalek reduce your use of paper clips. <laughs> anyway, know. let's uh, move on. That's Mavic Chen. On. <laughs> uh, and Tobias Vaughan uh, was a billionaire businessman who made electronics and sold him and sold out the Earth to the Cybermen in exchange for advanced knowledge about. He could rock a turtleneck, that man. And he the, could, and he had this great. We talked about this in two. He's got a great accent. He's got an assistant named Packer, and you can easily read a very homoerotic subtext into their relationship because he just dominates him and he says, yeah, Packer. And he always says exactly <laughs> the same way every time. We had so much fun. We haven't been able to do that for like all like. 12 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Anyway, we'll try and explain the others that come up. Okay. Oh, Alice, you The mining one. robot, which you mentioned before, oh, yes. which I like a lot, actually, and you dismissed it, but it was like a, an analogy of mining colonialism and, and people being chased off their land. The actual mining robot's hilarious, though, that it gets two cliffhangers <laughs> in which it's attacking the, the Doctor. It's doing exactly the same thing in both cliffhangers, only in one of them it's wearing gloves. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. that's seriously what it's happens. That? Yeah. It's meant to be a monster, so they put gloves on its mighty metal claws to make <laughs> them look like they're not metal. And then the gloves come off. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry, that was terrible. Oh. Nice. I'll go and sit in the corner now. No, Maddie, that was genius. Okay, questions, <laughs> real questions from real people. Uh, these first ones are all sort of moral connected, so we're going to go through them together. They're all excellent. Without villains, what would the Doctor do? Frequently, when he's not fighting monsters or villains, he's making things worse. 
Um, this one says, how do you reconcile the Doctor's actions towards the silence in Day of the Moon, which effectively amounts to him getting humanity to commit genocide on his behalf? And someone else has said, not strictly Doctor Who, but in Torchwood, the most horrific scene in Children of Earth was the committee deciding how to allocate the children to be handed over. Were they villains or just desperate? So these are all kind of questions of morality. Where, where does morality and monsterism fit in the show? Uh, I am, um, as we sort of said earlier, that the characters that you often come to loathe the most aren't necessarily the monsters or the villains, but they're the traitors. And I think to, um, that really seemed to me to be the basis of, of Torchwood. It wasn't so much about the villains, it was about the actual humans and political institutions and the, you know, the moral compromises they were willing to make. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of... I teeter on tor Torchwood. There were moments of greatness and moments of, um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think in Day of the Earth, it, re it, really, it really achieved what it set out to do, which were, you know, obviously there was this great evil, but the people that you, you, you find truly abhorrent and truly terrifying are just these bureaucrats who are, you know, trying to, trying to make compromises that anyone in that situation would have to make and the ramifications of them are just truly horrific, so much more horrific than, you know, an evil overlord coming in from outer space. Yeah. It's, I think the interesting thing about it is that the committee is making essentially the same decision that Jack Harkness makes in the episode. It's just that mm. they are talking about handing over... I mean, it's horrific. It's a portion of, you know, the Earth's children and they're, they're talking about just the UK's children, obviously, that are in charge of the whole planet. But then Jack makes a similar decision just on a, a sort of the scales are much different. So they're talking about a whole segment of the population and he's talking about sacrificing... Uh, this is a spoiler, by the way. Um, so turn off if you want to watch the end of Children of Earth. But uh, he um, what, he's talking about sacrificing his own great-grandson. His mm. own, like basically one child to save... Uh, the entire planet, whereas they're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of children to save the entire planet. So, so everyone's making the, essentially the same decision. It's the same decision, but, you know, you kind of... I think Jack gets more of a pass in a way because he's... Partly because he's so conflicted about it. Like, he, he it's clearly... You know, first of all, he's sacrificing his own flesh and blood, but also... Um, he also, I think, gets judged less harshly for it because the equation seems much more in his favour. Like, he's only sacrificing one person... To, I mean, it's horrible to reduce it to numbers, but I think that psychologically that's why we forgive him, but we don't forgive Frobisher and the other ministers who are making that decision because they're not... A, they're not agonising about it, and B, they're making a huge sacrifice, and admittedly it's smaller than the horrible things that will happen if they don't, but it's not... It's still a lot of children that they're killing, whereas Jack is, like, going on with sacrifice And it doesn't feel one. like a personal sacrifice. It almost feels like a yeah. political sacrifice. They're sort of... Well, it's it, not a sacrifice, yeah. is the point. Yeah, they're, they're sacrificing other people's people. children. They're asking other people to make the sacrifice. But this goes back to that Ben Bother idea, isn't it? There are no villains. There's just people trying to... Mm make the best of yeah. what they can. And the Doctor is frequently depicted as that in that way as well, as having to make those kind of you know, supposedly impossible moral choices. And, of course, the, one of the magic things about Doctor Who is that often uh, he's the character who finds the third way. Mm. Like, you're presented mm. with, well, either you don't do anything and this horrible thing happens, or you do this horrible thing, but then this less horrible thing happens. And then he goes, no, nope, I'm going to find a way to do the other thing that you didn't put on the list. Why do we think, though, about the silence? Because he does. He gets the, the people of Earth to commit genocide without yeah. even knowing where does that fit on a villainy scale? It is quite horrifying when you think about it because he turns the entire population of Earth into, like, alien killers. And it's presented as triumphant within the show. 
yeah. as well. I, I guess it, it, it kind of comes down to numbers a bit too with that. I, I like it when Doctor Who plays with the numbers where it's like one for 1,000, you know, and it's like, well, the whole of the human race or, or the genocide of the species, which numbers were smaller from my, remember, from my memory. I, I, like it, I like it when they play with the numbers because it makes you think, well, it's, it's the, what's the best out of those horrible situations? And I think Doctor Who's at its best when they write themselves into corners like that, where they get stuck with an impossible decision and sometimes they find the, you know, that third way. Um, I guess is it is it that morality thing of if you don't if you don't know it's happened, is it is it still is it the tree falling in the woods? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, if you don't know it's happened, the genocide happening in, in satellite it's, five. It's really the person who it's really the ones who made that decision to make them not you know not realize what was happening that had that weight on them. I do think the, the silence really aren't portrayed as a race or a species so much as they are. I think one of the most purely monstrous or nightmarish creations of Doctor Who, and I think that's been a hallmark of the Moffat era, that his um, his monsters are, you know, nightmares incarnate rather than aliens or sort of refugees from another another space system. So you don't really think of them as a race of aliens who are just trying to find a home on everyone's roof uh, so much as you do see them as sort of a representation of people's fears um, made flesh so in that in that sense I don't I, I don't think when you're watching you um I, mean, I have to say I certainly never watched and thought oh those poor little silence they just wanted to you know live their lives, lives quietly <laughs> they, they even the silence they have that kind of purity to them so it is very tra- it is tragic when they are destroyed because they're just acting according to their nature I mean uh, that kind of compassion for monsters comes right back from the original star monster, which is Frankenstein's monster, who is literally just behaving in a completely understandable way but cannot help but be monstrous. The silence is interesting, though, because I, I, I don't know if you can argue that they're, they're acting according to some sort of instinct or nature because they are... For starters, the silence is both those particular aliens and also an, a, you know, a quasi-religious order whose whole point is to defeat the Doctor. And everything they're doing on Earth is to create a weapon out of River Song. Like, they have a, a very specific agenda that they're trying to follow and they're using humanity to sort of form this weapon. So to, they're more of an army than a race. They're kind of an army. And, and, and it's, it's clearly he doesn't kill every silence or silent, who knows, I don't know what, it's the singular of them. <laughs> um, but he doesn't kill all of them because they come back later on. Um, he just gets rid of all the ones on Earth, which is still horrendous because supposedly there's lots of them. Um, and I wonder also, if, just from a logistical point of view, if people shoot a silence and then they don't remember they've done it, do they still trip over the body and then wonder why they've <laughs> tripped over? They've just been tripping over it on, you know, from Actually, the way to and from the kitchen for years and just forgetting about it immediately there, there, afterwards. There is something, though, in the lodger, and What's this, I must smell? admit, blew my mind that, that Moffat really was working quite cleverly with this, that... Um, in the lodger, you know, the doctor finds there's this spaceship on, on top of... Disguised as the top... Craig's house. Flat, flat, flat. Top, yeah, and flat. he trips over the body, which is in a suit with three fingers of presumably the pilot, yeah. and says, oh, that must be the pilot. And then moments later, he tells Amy that there was no one in there, that the thing was empty. And at the time, I thought, that's really weird, because he just said something, and now it's clear that's a silent. It's a dead silent. Wow. And the fact that was, you know, a year ahead of where he was going, so... He's clever. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes he Damn does know what he's doing. Moffat. Who would have thought? <laughs> Damn yeah. um, Talking about different eras, though, and different showrunners, I asked a question here about the, the Hinchcliffe era. So this is from the mid-'70s, the, the Gothic horror period, as it was often thought of. Why do you think there were a lot of humanoid villains in the Hinchcliffe era, for example, Harrison Chase... 
Ooh, Harrison Chase. So Harrison Chase is in the Seeds of Doom, uh, which is when they find these frozen pods of a creature called a crinoid, which is like a giant plant. And when it germinates, it grows. It can control other plant life. It infects an animal host and turns it into this hybrid animal plant creature and then grows enormous um, and tries to destroy the world. And Harrison Chase is this sort of eccentric, billionaire... Lover of plants. Ecological lover, yeah. Proto-Clive Palmer. Yeah, <laughs> I was Except instead of dinosaurs, it's plants. So if you could imagine um, Mr. Inman from um, from Are You Being Served, Mr. Humphreys, John Inman, Mr. Humphreys from Are You Being Served as a Bond villain, that's <laughs> sort of what he is. I could play all day in my green cathedral. <laughs> he, does, he does say that at one point. Um, I love him. Ooh, right, he's, he's, great. he's, he's so one of them. Uh, Magnus Greel. Oh, Magnus Greel. So that's the Talons of Wang Chiang, which probably most people have seen, but it's uh, the Doctor goes to Victorian London, dresses as Sherlock Holmes, and discovers that someone is killing uh, people on the streets or abducting them and then dumping the bodies in the river. Turns out to be um, a refugee from the 51st century who's conducted an illegal time travel experiment, come back in time, um, and the way they explain it makes no actual scientific sense, but essentially he's a vampire. His life force is draining out and he has to drain it from uh, young girls, and he uses the same technology to grow giant rats to protect his lair. As you do. Uh, uh, Morbius and Solon. I don't think we have enough time for you to explain all these. Morbius, Solon, there's some other guys. Okay. Evil. So anyway, the question is, in this mid-70s period, the Hinchcliffe era, Harrison Chase, Magnus Greel, Morbius, Solon, it's a a consistent theme that there are humanoid villains running through this. Why do we think that is? I have a suspicion, because it's part of that whole mid-70s conspiracy thriller... Deep Throat, ah. uh, your Watergate scandal, not the porn film. Um, that that whole we are kind the real of monsters. the the conspiracy slash mistrust of yeah, I think humans are the real monsters. I think was very much a, a feeling at that time. Yeah, it was a paranoid age, and you know you see that in sort of seventies horror films. They're all very sort of reflective of of a real. Um, uh, growing disconnect between the relationships people had with government and with and with you know, figures of authority. Um, I actually sort of relate it more to the Gothic tradition of, um, you know, there are eras of Doctor Who which are very much sort of slimy beasts with tentacles and all that kind of thing, but Gothic horror is very much about uh, the fear of the uncanny, sort of things that are, you know, look like us but not quite right. And, you know, a humanoid villain fits into that. It's not sort of some nine tentacle thing sticking to the roof. It's someone that looks like you but it's just chosen the path of darkness. Well, that seems a pretty good answer. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> We're right. We move on. Yes. Still speaking of conspiracy, though, um, we've got a message from Lucas who says, the most popular modern series monsters are about conspiracy. The weeping angels, there's evil in front of you that you aren't aware of, and if you're not vigilant, don't blink, they'll get you. And then by the time of the silence, even if you do see them, you're still screwed because they'll make you forget. So is conspiracy, we think, just a theme that goes through Doctor Who? That's playing on, you know, modern tropes of, of what's, you know, of the men in black and the distrust of, of people in power. That's, I like that. Well, That's it's a- also, I think, the fear there is that willful ignorance, that we know what our problems are. We can see them very clearly. We know what's happening, and yet we choose to ignore it, or yet we forget it, forget it again and again and need to be reminded again and again, whether it's things like climate change or the way we treat refugees, or all of these things are eating away at us, and yet we turn a blind eye to them and I think that's a real fear. What do you think of monsters taking a back seat in episodes like the Atraxi in the 
11th hour, or even the Zygons in the 50th. Actually, I wanted to mention the Zygons, because when we said, which monsters would you like to come back, I, I would still put the Zygons on that, because they weren't... They were more dressing in that story than actual... Yeah. The Zygons are interesting because they're great design. Visually, they're really interesting. Um, they have this organic crystallography technology which looks really interesting inside their spaceship. Um, they've got a dinosaur slash Loch Ness monster slash Garrison. Um, and, and they also they have cool voices. And they, they were sort of... You know, the, I, I can't think of an earlier... Um, really great example of a race of aliens who, yes, we're trying to conquer the Earth, but it's like we don't have somewhere else to live, um, as they would speak, right? So, um, but I think also they're a trope that has been done so much in Doctor Who, which is that they disguise themselves as people or they transform or they possess people, um, which effectively sort of become the same thing the way they're used in Doctor Who. So I don't know if I don't know if you can make... I don't think you need them to make that story because they do it so often anyway. It's such a common thing to well, do. Yeah, no, I think Swan Smith and Slovene are pretty much a, a 21st century Zygon. Yeah. Mm. Bajay? I think they need to take a back seat sometimes too because these stories just have so much to tell. You know, you can't... You don't have room for all the action of a, of a story that has been told many times before when you're trying to do something else with that episode because that episode wasn't really about them at all, obviously. And um, so it's, it's, I think it's OK for the monsters to take a back seat as long as they're not just you know, waving their hands and then walking off. As long as they have some sort of practical uh, place in the plot, you know, they have a, a meaning for being there and they affect the characters in some way that may actually affect what the, what the actual plot of the thing is. Or, yeah, as long as they play a part in it that makes sense, I think. I think the audience is uh, smart enough to realise, OK, it's not about them, it's about this. And while you sort of talk about the various foes that the Doctor has account encountered again and again, I do like those episodes that remind you you are getting slightly different versions of the Doctor. So the way, you know, you know, the fourth Doctor or the seventh Doctor or the second Doctor might approach a particular problem might be specific and unique to the way the ninth or tenth or eleventh Doctor would deal with that. So I feel like you, you do have room, as um, Bajo said, to sort of bring bring back similar villains and sort of get a different Doctor's response to it. And then in turn, the, the monsters or villains can evolve, like as you see with the Daleks, you know, that's... I remember that just giving me chills when you had that episode with the return of... It, it was like, oh, OK, so everything's moving forward. The Doctor is evolving, the Daleks are evolving. All of, all of these... You know, you, there's no point in having an outmatched foe. It's, it's, you have to have this kind of... Everyone's, everyone's got to level up at the same yeah. rate. Is what yeah. you're saying. I have to say, I've been really ambivalent about the evolution of the Daleks. There's times where I thought it was really interesting, but then, you know, in the episode, the Daleks take Manhattan. They're practically what... Yeah, you're with me. Um, they're practically wandering around having water cooler conversations yeah. and discussing philosophy. And then a few episodes later, you sort of get the Dalek nanos. What's you know, I just... What's with the colours? Yeah. I don't like the colours. The this Teletubby is the Daleks. This is the weird thing about those new Fine. style Daleks, or iDalek 2.0, as many people yeah. dubbed them. That is not my joke, I should point out. A lot of people came up with that at the time. But um, <laughs> they, 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 they don't do anything with it in the episode because yeah. they turn up at the end and then they never use them again except in conjunction with normal Daleks. But there's all this fiction that they wrote to explain what they are. I think... And that's really interesting, and they don't use any of it in the TV series. Maybe because there was a bit of a backlash against the, the new Cutler Daleks, right, just in general, and at least it, there was from in, with my friends. Maybe they just, maybe they just went... Mm, well, the message boards I go to, yeah, it was. <laughs> maybe they just said, OK, let's just not use them. <laughs> let's yeah. not let's yeah. not explore that too much. We'll do it subtly. I mean, I don't we think it was successful, but I think it was a valiant effort because there's no point in having... I mean, as you say, if these are reflective of our fears... 
there's no point in, in having outdated fears. I'm not scared of plastic anymore. With those brightly coloured Daleks, which I always thought looked a, um, a little bit like a Kenwood Mixmaster myself, <laughs> or possibly a photocopier. You want a whole set. Yeah, I think they could collate at the back. But I did read in either Digital Spy or Private Eye that that was apparently just done because every kid had a Dalek toy and they needed a new thing to merchandise. It, it now, I don't, like I don't know if that's true or not, but that's... I want the marketing manager that came up with that to now be a villain in the show. <laughs> I'm not so cynical that I think that that's probably what happened, but I feel like that's what it feels like to me. You know, like it may, they may have actually had proper intentions with these colours and, and like, you know, wrote all this stuff for them. But it did just feel like here's a new toy to buy and when you go to the shops to buy Daleks, you, there was, I could not buy a normal coloured Dalek in Sydney for about two months. Nerd world problems. Could not buy one. <laughs> Longer than you've ever gone between buying Daleks. I went to like five shops. While we're on that, worst example of villain slash monster decay, someone's asked. For example, the Cyberman weakness to gold dust, which became weakness to gold anything, which became death by coins. Um, I I think, for me, Sontarans went from being just amazing. Every time they appeared, they were slightly worse. And I do remember the um, the, the appearance on the two Doctors where you could clearly see that the, the costumes didn't even join up anymore. They were just... So half-assed about it, and I possibly throw in there the Weeping Angels had that weird intermediate thing. We went, they can talk through people. Maybe mm. they don't do that. Here's a whole bunch of rules when they only needed the two rules, and they were great. But Maddie, Maddie. Oh, I have ranted drunkenly about this to so many people. Do it sober. Um, do it sober. <laughs> she can't do it sober. <laughs> no, I thought you know the Weeping Angels was such an amazing villain. So simple. You know, don't blink. That was the only thing you had to do. And then when they came back again, then you sort of had the sort of inhabiting, you know, the image of an angel, and I kind of went along with it. By the time the angels were in Manhattan, there it was the Statue of Liberty. Clearly people have been shutting their eyes in this city and hadn't been travelling back through time. Not to mention the basic premise, which doesn't work. If the Doctor has its TARDIS, then the angels aren't scary because if they send someone back in time, just go back and get him. Yeah. Like, the, the weeping angels work because they were in a Doctorless episode where he was stuck without the TARDIS. So the theme here that is emerging is all the in Manhattan episodes <laughs> yeah. can drive you up the <laughs> no, I, I, that's actually a pretty good comment. Has there ever been a good New York episode oh, of... No, no so that, that was proving chase, my point. No. You, sir, are proving my point. <laughs> the only good, only good thing about the chase no, was a preview way, of Peter Purves. That was it. Yeah. Has there ever been a good American accent is another thing. I think they're just all so oh, bad. The guy, the guy who gives the speech in Hooverville because he's actually American. His accent was great. And Minor he was great. Exception. Terrible Even episode. John Everyone else is American. His accent's actually, a bit shaky I, a lot of the time. I was time. watching The Tenth Planet for one of the other episodes and I, I said on Twitter saying the lines of, God, why can English actors just never do a decent American accent? <laughs> and Gary Russell came back going, both those people you're mentioning are actually American? <laughs> <laughs> and they were. He was right. And I said, what is it about just being in England? It makes even Americans unconvincing in their own hands. <laughs> I, don't know. I, um, I just want... Someone did tweet uh, about the new Daleks. They said... Um, I just want to get this in because it's... <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but it's awesome. Uh, they heard that the Dalek redesign was partly because the Eccleston-era ones were built to Billy Piper's eyeline and Karen Gillan is much taller. <laughs> Which is true, she is, and the new Daleks are much taller Just as well. put the Daleks on a box. That's what they should do. <laughs> yeah. How would they get on it, though? No, it's, every time it cuts the close-up, the Daleks are, like, yeah. foot taller. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, you know, like Moulin Rouge with Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. The Tom Cruise of Daleks. <laughs> um, any other monsters or villains you feel... I feel like the Master got a bit weird in his latest incarnation. Mm. Like, I, I sort of understand he always had a, quite a breadth of powers, but... 
when he sort of came back at the end of the tenant era, he was leaping all over the place like Ang Lee's Hulk. He was reincarnated like Voldemort. They were trying to make him like more sprightly, right? Because a lot of the other masters had been like, yeah. There was less moustache twirling and more sort of just general all-encompassing superpowers. But I felt like it sort of took away from. Um, the sort of true evil of the master in that he was so similar to the Doctor in so many ways. He just became this sort of um, villain that could do anything. I mean, this is an evolution of of our taste as well. You know, you had much more static villains in the past, much more menacing, sort of silent, creeping villains. And now you just have, I think, because we have shorter attention spans and because these are our fears as well, or kinetic fears. You have big, uh, violent actions and sudden sudden annihilation because that's the thing that is, you know, you've got drones and you've got bombs and you've got planes and you've got terrorism and all these things that could just suddenly happen. And, I mean, that's something that the the angels play on as well, which is that it's just a a moment of inattention and everything goes. So I I think the dynamic villain is more... Yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm fine with villains to evolve, but I feel like just on a dramatic level, it makes their conflicts much less believable because at any point you're just like, this isn't going well for you, Master, fly away. Yeah, you lose Disappear. authority by, by bouncing around, as you say. Yeah, or, you, you know, you lose the sense that these are two characters in a fight that are somewhat equally matched and have weaknesses that correspond to each other's strengths and that's what's going to determine how it plays out. It just sort of becomes this, you know, weird slanging match of, you know... Paper, scissors, evaporate. That's what I like so much about what they have done with the Cybermen. Uh, I don't know if that's a general consensus, but just just the way that he, he they're much scarier now. I feel like they're much uh, more equipped to fight the Doctor. You know, I feel like he is really outmatched. I feel like in a lot of the uh, in the in the maybe even in the Eccleston ones, just the he could the, the magic wand method. You know, of like, oh, I've solved the problem. I can hold a, a screwdriver to a Dalek mm. and he will stop. You know, I, I, I don't... Under, I, that's the disconnect for me. And it happens, still happens quite a lot, actually, where it's like, I have the Doctor, you will stop. And they go, oh, no, it's the Doctor! What do I do? Shoot him! I, the, that, that, I get... Just shoot him yes. with your things! I, I, I get that disconnect a fair bit still, and, and I, I want them to evolve them all so that he runs when he sees them instead yeah. of just standing there until he needs to stand there and fight them. Yeah, he doesn't do as much... He, like, he does a lot of running, but it doesn't seem like he's really afraid a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. They're just right in front of each other! Run. The, the master, I was thinking about that idea of villainy and evil, and I was thinking about in um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, spoiler coming for people who haven't watched Buffy, um, Spike, who is a vampire, there's a great um, sequence, I think it's in, it's in season four, where he starts to realise that the, the Slayer's power comes not necessarily from her, her huge strength, but that she has this group of people around around her, and he, he does what he calls the Yoko effect, where he starts basically just manipulating them psychologically to split up her team. Mm. And it's really interesting, because it works, and he's so good at just dropping the right word in at the right place to do this, and it's almost that thing of... Passive-aggressive. Well, yeah, it's almost like I'd love to see the master now, rather than blasting beams out of his hands, being able to just know which points to... Which weak points, those are the, yeah. And I think that, I mean, to Spike, obviously he's not a Doctor Who villain, but uh, he is a villain that I think was a monster and becomes a villain because he has that transition of of becoming capable of choice Mm. in the matter. And then a hero. And then a hero. Yeah, which also happens to the master if you watch Scream of the Shalker. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to talking about that at Christmas. Can Um, we do a Buffy podcast after this? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Next year. <laughs> I've got so many cat stories that are relevant to Buffy. <laughs> I'm a very quick question I just want to ask because it's so specific. 25 words or less, Bajo. I'm giving you a limit on this. Mm. Do you think there will be a good Doctor Who game before the 100th anniversary? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay, done. Now, I, I would love one, but no. They'd never give them enough money to make them. Uh, no. Someone did mention that uh, Caves of Androzani is full of villains, uh, which it absolutely is. It also has the most pointless, we have to have a monster because this is Doctor Who monster ever in this uh, thing called the Magma Beast, which just shows up for no reason except they're going, we've got to have a monster in it, and threatens almost no one and then just dies. <laughs> I went to the Doctor Who exhibition at the, um, uh, at the Daypole factory in Langochlin, uh, a few years ago, yeah, for my birthday. And, <laughs> and, and large, the, the, the Magma Beast was on display and I genuinely had no memory of what it was from. Like, I'm... <laughs> like, this thing going, I don't remember this at that, all. That, that, that story, um, which is Peter Davison's last one and, and consistently is voted one of the best of all time in polls, uh, is just full of villains. Like, there's Shara's Jack, who is, like, a psychopathic guy who makes androids. There's, um, oh, what's his name, um... Uh, Morgan, the, or whatever his name is. Morgus, thank you, uh, who is the head of this conglomerate who's a greedy corporate villain. Uh, you've got the second in command of um, the guy, uh, Salatine, who is uh, uh, secretly an android and so really creepy. Uh, it's got all these great villain characters and so you just don't care about the monster. I just want to mention Sydney crowds much more aggressive than the Melbourne ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have one more live show left. If you would like to travel down to Melbourne... It's on Sunday, December 15th. 15th. Yep. It's a Christmas special. Uh, we will be looking back at all the things and people we didn't quite have room for in our other 316 shows. Uh, so Peter Cushing is going to get a look we'll in. Yay! Yeah, um, movies, uh, Scream in the Shower Car, we'll talk about. Trevor uh, Martin. <laughs> yeah, Trevor Martin, who is a doctor for like yeah. a stage play. K9 and Company. Richard E. Grant. Uh, Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant! Um, if you have listened to our 11 show, you will have you've heard our, our house band, The Time Lads. They're joining us again because we've got five more songs to get through. <laughs> On a completely unrelated note, I once played a body double for Richard E. Grant stealing a duck. I also have a Richard E. Grant story. No, 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 hang on, hang on. Don't just like, oh, Let's yeah, do a that. Richard E. Grant oh, yeah, podcast. Yeah. No, 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 the whole like, oh, yeah, stealing a duck, yeah, whatever. No, 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 hang on. <laughs> More on this duck stealing Richard E. Grant. Please. I honestly, I just, I was in a boat and I was wearing the same clothes as him. I just matched his height, and uh, we we had a duck wrangler and we had a great old chat talking what about was it for? how to what, wrangle why? ducks. Yeah. I have no idea what the film was. It was a kids' film about stealing ducks. Apparently, um, <laughs> did this really no, happen, Basha? No, it was really it a dream? Happened. I remember. Sure this, I remember having after the fourteen hours of dancing and you were delirious. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually around the same time. I just remember. I was tested Austin Powers and I was stealing a duck as Richard E. Grant asked me to. That was a it was a crazy time to feel for me. like your whole acting career was just like a wild bender. That's about it. <laughs> Those two things are if about it. It wasn't a film. Richard E. Grant was just fucking with you. <laughs> yes! An Why elaborate host. Be stealing a duck. I once actually filmed a Richard E. Grant interview when he was on um, Triple J Breakfast and... It was, it was like, you know, 6.20am interview and I got the impression he'd been out really late the night before. And the only thing he could talk about, he kept giving huge numbers of, um, you know, 18th century euphemisms for vagina. <laughs> he had like 40 on hand. And every time you'd talk about something, he'd be like, oh, Do you, do you remember me. any? Uh, no, I just now think they called them Richards back then. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Slippery ducks. All right, coming next year from the Splendid Chaps, the Regcast, all about Richard E. Grant. Uh, we've used up all the good stories, though. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> December 15th was my point. Uh, a very splendid Christmas. Come join us at Trades Hall in Melbourne. Tickets are already on sale. It is going to be amazing. It's going to be great. That's going to be our last live show ever. That's it. End of Splendid Chaps. It will be. There is one more podcast after that, which is... Uh, actually, no, there's three more podcasts because two of the shows we did already. Anyway, there's one more we haven't recorded yet, um, which is part of the crowdfunding to do this show here in, in Sydney, was we're doing a by-request show. So we've, um, we've asked... Uh, we had three backers who elected to give us a, an amount of money for a reward to um, choose one of the topics on our by-request show, and we um, one of them actually gave us so much money that we've taken all three of his suggestions. <laughs> Seemed fair, and they were great suggestions, uh, but one of them we are living up to the vote. So this is a reminder, if you are one of our possible backers, you can suggest a topic for that podcast and we will put it to a vote of everyone who um, supported our bid to come up here to Sydney and we will choose that sixth topic um, from those options. And we've got quite a few interesting ones. Yeah, and we're already. planning to put that show uh, up for podcast on December 31st. So, so that'll be the very last uh, thing that comes out this year for us and then we'll have a couple of ones that are stragglers that'll come out next year. Before we clear them off the stage, can we please thank all of our guests? Marjo, Maddie and Alice. We always like to end the show with a musical act, and we've gone through a lot of songs which are connected to Doctor Who, some well-known, some not well-known. Tonight, I think we're going for Willfully Obscure. Yes, yes. it's true. I, uh, I found out about this song before it was cool, and, uh, <laughs> and, and tonight, so will you, uh, because it's still not cool. Uh, no. It's a, great, it's a great song. So when I, when I first moved to Melbourne, the only people I knew in Melbourne were a bunch of uh, sci-fi fans, particularly members of the Red Dwarf official fan club. And one of my good friends, Tom, um, was very kindly helped me grow as a nerd by giving me a bootleg tape of a bunch of obscure sci-fi music, uh, which included things like the two singles by Marvin the Paranoid Android. Um, there was uh, the original Hitchhiker's theme song, the version from the radio series. There was a bunch of other stuff. And mixed in amongst that, as well as uh, Bulla McKenka's um, Doctor Who is going to fix it, which we've had covered on a previous episode. Yes, yeah, so you can find Georgia Field doing an amazing version of that on our uh, five. Five Fear, fear episodes. Episode. Amazing cover. Um, there was this song um, which was called uh, Brackets, I Want to Be, in brackets, Doctor Who. And it was, again, another Australian Doctor Who related song. It was recorded by an Adelaide band called Jackson Zumdish, that was their name. Uh, in 1980, they released it on vinyl and sold 500 copies. It was their biggest hit. <laughs> uh, and and it's, I found it, like, it's, it's, it, I, think, I don't think they would be offended, and they might listen to this because it turns out they are friends of a friend of mine. Uh, but they, uh, I think it's fair to say it's quite a stupid song, but it's, it's a delightfully stupid song. It's not, the original version is not punk, and there have been arguments on the internet about whether it is or not. Um, but it's not, it was not intended to be. It's this sort of very... Uh, lo-fi uh, guys recording a song in a garage kind of we're gonna sing in a stupid voice and have a good time kind of song and it's uh, it's hilarious and so I thought what could we do uh, we could, should, should cover that song 
um, because it does mention in the chorus the Doctor beating up the Daleks. And I thought, well, that fits the theme of monsters and villains. There's an so, Adelaide band that is now heartbroken that you haven't taken them seriously. Like, it was their beautiful anthem. <laughs> no, they, they, they know we're doing this and they're OK. Uh, this is the best part, as I was trying to find a copy of it because the only copy I had was on cassette tape. I don't have a cassette tape player. Uh, and I asked a friend of mine who's a DJ in Adelaide, hey, do you have a copy of this song? And he said, copy of the song? I know the band. <laughs> They're old mates of mine, so uh, shout out to DJ Ian for helping me find a copy uh, and also letting the band know we were doing this. But we're going we're gonna to have an amazing artist to cover it. So we asked Kira Daly. Kira, lady nerd Daly, cabaret star and musical star. And Kira thankfully said yes, but suggested we'd be better with more instrumentation. Yes, so she, uh, we, we, we also approached uh, Katrina Wimberley, who is going to play... Uh, I, I suggested she might play the mandolin, because I love the mandolin, and she's a brilliant mandolin player. Um, she also plays the violin. Um, then they were debating which one she should play. I think in the end they've decided both. Um, and, and then they brought in Pete Led, who's playing guitar. Yeah. And then there was just room for one more. It wasn't quite enough. So they thought, who could we get who might be there, who plays an instrument, um, and who describes themselves as a terrible musician in their bio? <laughs> it would be Alice Fraser. So <laughs> she's playing the banjo. The banjo. Um, so um, we're going to lead into Kira Daly and all of those people uh, playing I Want to Be Doctor Who, originally by Jackson Zumdish. And until next we meet, in the final words of the first Doctor, thank, thank you. you. It's, it's good. good. Keep warm. <laughs> Give it all away for a 20-foot scarf and a pocket full of jelly beans. Jelly babies! A two, three, four. I want to be Doctor Who. I want to be Town Lord too. I jump in my TARDIS and thump up the Daleks and come and pick up you. chance for you to roam around the galaxy with me when I'm Doctor Who. I wouldn't worry about the Zygon menace and the Cyberman problem ain't mine. Why would I bother with them when I got you? You, me, and K-9. Wow. Yes. I want to be Doctor Who. I wanna be a town or two. I jump in my TARDIS and thump up the Daleks. Come pick up you. Oh, I'd have enemies for sure. But that wouldn't worry me much. Cause when I'm Doctor Who, I'll have that magic touch. I jump into time and space, no worries, and have some dimensional fun, and then I'll get ready to come and see you.
When I'm Doctor Who Be my companion When I'm Doctor Who My jelly baby When I'm Doctor been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chats, Alice Fraser, Maddie Palmer, Stephen Varger O'Donnell, Kira Daly, Katrina Wimberley and Pete Lead. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. This episode of Splendid Chaps was crowdfunded via Possible.com by the generous support of listeners just like you, especially Andrew Waddington, Stephen Hahn, Lee McKenzie and Alex Mason. You can find thanks for our other supporters, plus more about us at SplendidChaps.com. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm.